Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. Hey, everybody. Uh, we got a uh, great one today, you know, uh, for a change, uh, with a guest I really like, finally. Uh, Donna Edwards uh, was the first African-American woman to serve uh, in the House of Representatives for the state of uh, Maryland. Uh, before her five terms in Congress, she had an impressive career in uh, advocacy on issues like domestic violence and campaign finance reform. She is now a contributing uh, columnist for the Washington Post, a uh, local newspaper in uh, Washington, D.C., and does commentary on various uh, networks, MSNBC, NBC, and the Fox News Channel, but she has a deal with them. So she will only uh, be on with the non-nutcase anchors, uh, Chris Wallace, and to a lesser extent, uh, Brett Baer. So that's, that's that. But first, I w- there's a couple things I want to cover. Uh, this has been, obviously, a, a horrible couple of weeks. I uh, represented Minnesota, of course, in the United States Senate. Uh, as a Minnesotan, as a Minneapolitan, this has been uh, a nightmare a couple of weeks, but it has been, I think, for for almost all Americans, coming to grips with this brutalization of African Americans that's been our, our history from the very beginning. And, of course, I'm going to be talking to Donna Edwards uh, about that. I think, as you know, I have from the beginning, not wanted to do news of the day. That kind of ended when COVID started. I've been covering COVID, different aspects of it on this, this podcast. And, you know, news of the day, that's, that's Pod Save America does that. They discuss the news of the day. It's a great uh, podcast. Uh, of course, in, in my podcast, Pod Damn America, that I do with uh, Reverend Wright, uh, you do get news of the day, but here usually uh, I've been doing issues, uh, but I do want to talk about what's been going on uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you all saw the obscenity in Lafayette Park when federal troops uh, broke up a peaceful demonstration with tear gas and horses so that the president could do his photo op. There was something that I've not heard people talk about from the photo op. That struck me. There was a a reporter who, while the president was posing, uh, asked him, is that your Bible? Is that your Bible? And he paused and then thought about it and he said, it's a Bible. Which told me two things. One, it wasn't his Bible. And two, just how stupid this man is. Because by saying it's a Bible, you know it's not his Bible. <laughs> so you know that. So he might as well have said, no, it's not my Bible. But no, he says, it's a Bible. So you know two things. It's not his Bible. And the other thing you know is how stupid he is. Because he could have just said, no, it's, it's not my Bible. <laughs> but no, he had to say, it's a Bible. What a friggin' moron. What a bad, bad man. And General Mattis uh, wrote this week about what a bad, bad man we have. He said he's the first president in his lifetime who hasn't tried to unite the country. General Mattis is older than me, and I was alive during Richard Nixon. What he's saying, Mattis has a very low bar for trying to unite 
with his bar, Richard Nixon, tried to unite the country. But I'm not going to quibble. I'm, I'm glad that uh, General Mattis uh, said this stuff. Um, another thing I want to talk about is Rand Paul. Uh, uh, that's a person. It's not a thing. Rand Paul was the only senator uh, to vote against the new anti-lynching bill from uh, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. Uh, he voted against an anti-lynching bill. Now, I don't know... I don't know exactly what's in the anti-lynching bill, but I know it's anti-lynching. And it reminded me of when when Rand Paul came to the Senate very early on, in the first couple of weeks of his being in the Senate, there was a vote in which, again, he was the only senator to vote against something. And this is what it was. It was a bill to make it illegal to shine, you know, laser pointers into the cockpits of airplanes while they were landing because people had been starting to do this and pilots had been temporarily blinded by these while they're landing their planes. And we wanted to make it a federal law that you can't do that, okay? He voted against that and... The reason he he voted against it was, as a libertarian, he felt that should be the states. The states have to write the law that you can't blind a pilot while he's landing his or her plane. Okay. I don't think there's any industry that is more interstate than air travel. <laughs> what a moron. What a moron. I mean, is the pilot going to go on like, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are uh, entering Mississippi airspace, uh, so you can light up now if you're a smoker. Uh, go ahead and light up. Uh, but uh, we'll tell you when we head in Louisiana, and uh, you'll have to put those out. What a moron. What a moron. I I don't like to call people morons. Yes, I do. What are you talking about, Al? You call people morons all the time. You just called Trump a moron. No, I said he was stupid. Very different. Anyway, uh, talking about Rand Paul, it just reminds me of how important it is to get rid of all these enablers, these Republican enablers in the Senate, get rid of the ones we can. You know, uh, George Floyd's brother Terrence spoke at the the site of his brother's uh, murder uh, a number of days ago, and it was so moving. He wiped away tears and told everybody that Violence and looting are not going to bring his brother back. We should do it a different way, he said. And then he said, vote. Vote. Educate yourself and vote. This is a a point in time where we know we have to make changes. The pandemic has shown us so many weaknesses, the disparities between uh, black and white, between the wealthy and the poor and working class. We, we have to vote these guys out. We have to. So um, I think you're going to enjoy uh, my conversation with, with Donna Edwards. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. 
Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's what happens when you give Grammarly to your entire team. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. I am uh, so happy to have Donna Edwards uh, with us. Donna served five terms representing Maryland's 4th Congressional District, uh, which is comprised of most of Prince George's County and parts of uh, some other county. I try not to uh, over-research these these interviews. Uh, Donna, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's really great to be with you, although, you know, on this um, occasion, uh, it's a difficult time for the country. You know... As the pandemic was going on, you thought, man, this is the worst crisis since World War II. We have a global pandemic. Then this, then this in my state, in my city, in uh, Minneapolis. And then what you've seen, the reaction to that, you try to wonder how bad it can get. And then the president uh, makes it worse by having the, the, the military break up a peaceful demonstration in Lafayette Park so that the president can walk across the street for a photo op. Did you hear that the Secretary of Defense said that he didn't know where they were going? Did you hear that? Yeah, I I heard that. And I have to tell you, I mean, his late description of what he knew and what he didn't know and where he was walking was very lame. And, you know, I think about Lafayette Park and I have participated in so many marches, demonstrations, you know, protests across from the White House at Lafayette Park, and I have never seen anything like what took place at the hands of federal law enforcement. And the reason I say federal law enforcement is because the District of Columbia is not a state. It should be, but it's not. And so it means that the president of the United States has the ability to call on something like a couple of dozen different law enforcement agencies and operations at his disposal who are federal, who can be unleashed as they were on peaceful protesters exercising their First Amendment rights. It was, you know, shocking upon all the words that where we've actually lost the vocabulary to describe what this president inflicts on us every day. But this was at the height. It was a new one. But what fascinated me was the defense secretary saying, I didn't know where we were going. And I guess, he, you know, he just saying, okay, I'm going to walk with you. Uh, and I'm just assuming you're not taking me to someplace really embarrassing for us all. You know, when you assume, you make an ass out of Uma Thurman. You know that. Well, you know, what was interesting about that is even if you take him at his word, and I don't, that he didn't know where they were going. (laughs) Okay. Once they got there, 
he got in the lineup with the president of the United States holding a Bible up in front of St. John's church. So he knew what he was doing then, um, but he didn't step away. He didn't get out of the photo shot. He participated. And so I just really don't buy that. And, you know, when I looked at the pictures and I saw the president fumbling around, looking at the binder as though he was figuring out, well, did I get the right book off the bookshelf? And then using it as a prop, certainly Secretary Esper knew right then what was happening, but he didn't step away. Yeah, I think he was looking at it to see which side was up, you know? You don't want to hold it upside down. Because that's embarrassing. Yes, I mean, you know, you're at a church, you could open it up and read one of the passages that talks about the least among us and the obligations of, you know, Christians to look out for whole communities. I suppose you could do something You're assuming now (laughs) that it included the New Testament. Because Ivanka brought it over in her purse, and, you know, she's Orthodox, she's Jewish. The entire thing was bizarre, and as, as if it weren't bizarre really? enough. Really? You think so? <laughs> he, re- he repeated it the next day at the shrine over in Northeast Washington, D.C. The president repeated exactly the same move again the following day at the National Shrine. So even after all the fallout from St. John's Church, he thought, wow, that was a really great photo op. Let me get another one. And so over at the National Shrine, they actually, again, moved protesters out of a park, not in the way that they did at Lafayette Park, but still people who were exercising their First Amendment rights um, in order for the pre- to make way for the president to stand in front of another religious facility to facilitate his politics. Did he hold up a Bible there? You know, I don't even know. I mean, because I, 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 I'm trying not to keep in touch with every single moment of every single day that he does something that is offensive. Maybe they hid all the Bibles in the White House from him so he didn't have anything to take. Um, he still wanted to take the picture. You know, I think in a lot of ways, obviously, the president had wanted to distract in all kinds of ways. But the way he executed that distraction mirrored what we would describe as human rights violations if they occurred in any other country. And that is the thing that as Americans, we should be frightened about. Clearly, what he's trying to do, and that whole speech was about law and order, as if law and order isn't about police respecting the rights of of citizens. This all started with the obscene video of the murder of Mr. Floyd. Uh, Let me ask you this. I I think that this is an outgrowth both of the obscenity and length of that video, but also because of the pandemic and what the pandemic has laid bare about racism in our country, about just the differences for example, that a disproportionate number of people who have died from COVID are African-American or people of color, right? That's right. I mean, in some of the cities who've experienced some of the highest numbers of COVID deaths, the number is reaching into the, you know, 40, 50, 60 percent of victims who die are African-American who are people of color. And so, and I think that from the president's point of view, he didn't like it every day that, you know, we are now over 106,000 Americans who died under his irresponsible and incompetent handling of this crisis. And so um, he wanted to hijack those headlines Uh, which have now kind of gone below the fold. And now um, he creates another headline with this obscenity of imposing law enforcement. Would that um, George Floyd enjoyed the privileges and protections of law enforcement, he would not have had a knee pierced into his neck, uh, which was enough to kill him. And the president has yet really to address that and to address the pain of Black people across the country who um, have had too many of these stories that either grab the headlines or don't 
of the egregious treatment that they suffer at the hands of law enforcement or of vigilantes standing in the place of law enforcement because they're getting messages from on high from the president of the United States that okays that kind of aggressive behavior. I mean, we've heard the president at his campaign rallies call on law enforcement to act in the most outrageous ways against people who oppose him. And so I, I think I, I look at this as you know another in a long list of offenses of this president um, that have had horrible results for black people and for people of color. In July of 2017, he gave a speech in Long Island to law enforcement, and he basically said, uh, you know, rough him up a little bit, right? I mean, he used those words, and Bill Barr has been doing sort of the same kind of things, saying to law enforcement, uh, you know, if uh, people in certain communities, communities don't really respect you, then maybe they just don't need any protection. I mean, he, basically what you've seen is the President of the United States and our chief law enforcement officer giving a permission slip police to uh, murder innocent people, you know, they took that permission slip and it's been ugly. It has just been ugly. And this president, what he was doing in that speech and what he was doing in Lafayette Park was basically, it was he was taking a page from the George Wallace, Richard Nixon playbook. That's what he was doing. Everything he does is toward winning that election. Well, I think that's absolutely right, Alan. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, even his comments about, you know, the looting and the shooting, I mean, that was taken from the playbook of the bigots of the 1960s, responding to people exercising civil disobedience and then provocateurs within their ranks engaged in criminal behavior. And this president deliberately does not separate the peaceful protests that are sanctioned in our constitution from people who might be hijacking their movement and their and their story. And so, you know, when I listen to the attorney general and I hear the language that's being used sort of taking for example the insurrection act or in order to create a circumstance where the president can exercise authority that I don't believe he has. Um, he threatens, but I don't believe that he has the, uh, that kind of authority to call on the military to respond. And one of the reasons that he could use federal law enforcement agencies, whether it was um, of the FBI, of the Secret Service, of the Park Police, et cetera, is because of the status of the District of Columbia. And the president having the ability to do that because he can. I don't think he can do that in Minnesota. I don't think he can do that in Illinois as he has threatened, but he uses that language to intimidate and to give permission to those who carry a badge and a, and a weapon to act in the most outrageous way. I mean, just some of the videos that have been circulated about police responding to these protesters have been outrageous. And while some people may say, oh, well, it's just a couple of bad apples. Well, I'm sorry, but there's a whole rotten cart in there someplace. And we need to get deeply into a system that allows that. But we must have a president of the United States who doesn't sanction it. I want to talk to you about how we get rid of bad cops. I heard Eugene Robinson, uh, who's a colleague of yours over at MSNBC, he's a contributor, as you are, and he said, this is before that happened uh, in Lafayette Park, but he said, I think we may be at an inflection point, meaning this may actually cause us, force us to finally, finally address this. And as soon as he said that this may be an inflection point, my first thought was, Oh, man, this isn't going to be an inflection point. That's how friggin' sad this is. Now, it will be an inflection point if we get Trump out of there 
and we get Republicans out of the U.S. Senate. I really believe that President Biden and a Democratic Senate will take this on and take it on from day one. Um, You know, I've given some thought. When I was in the Senate, I did a number of things, and one of them uh, was crisis intervention training, which is training cops to understand when they've entered a situation that's a little out of control because of of mental illness. But part of what that teaches is de-escalation. We need to do a whole bunch of stuff, including we need data. There's data of this kind of abuses that we have a national data that the FBI runs, but only 40% of police report to it. And we need to require that they do. Right. I mean, look, I think that we have to make change on multiple levels. I mean, I recall when back in the um, 90s, I was doing developing police training tools and training um, law enforcement about the things that they were doing that resulted in women not feeling comfortable coming forward and reporting domestic violence or how they would respond on a scene. When I think over the last 30 years, we've made tremendous progress in really retraining and helping police think differently culturally about their response to domestic violence. It is not perfect, but it is way different than it was 30 years ago. But that's 30 years. And a lot of it came through federal funding that then uh, provided funding to local law enforcement to be able to, you know, sort of really engage. It came through, you know, multiple years of not just training once, but training and retraining and retraining to really change culture. And so I know that this is hard work, um, but we got to start somewhere. And I think that You know, there are billions of dollars, federal dollars that go into state and local law enforcement all across this country every year. And we need to start conditioning some of that funding on making these changes. Um, There are things that we can do. I mean, in terms of a database, I mean, if we had a a really national registry of law enforcement officers who were let go in one department and committed some heinous act and they were let go. And then they go, you know, five, 10 miles down the road and they get hired in another department. Well, we should know that. It's just like having bad doctors, right? We, we, we shouldn't allow that. And, and you're right about data. Here's something shocking. We do not know how many Americans are, are killed every year by cops. We have a national use of force uh, database, but police departments that report to that database represent only 40% of of police officers. And we should make it much easier to get rid of bad cops. And I'm a union guy. I belong to three unions, and I believe in collective bargaining, and I believe in that unions aren't powerful enough now. But police unions cannot protect bad cops. That's something we have learned. That's what happened in Minneapolis. Right. The Chauvin guy had a horrible record. He should not have been there. He should not have been there. He should have been kicked out of the force. You know, mayors need to have the pow- the have the tools that they need to uh, compel police chiefs that are um, really vigorously enforcing things upon their officers um, and the ability to fire them. Um, I think one of the things that has expedited what's happening in Minneapolis right now with the former officer Chauvin is the fact that the mayor fired him. And so then he didn't come under the protection of the police union. And that has allowed, you know, for things to move more quickly. You know, police unions are among the most powerful Uh, in the country. I mean, where other unions are losing their uh, powers as service unions and the police unions are not. I also think, Al, you'll remember this, that there's a program out of the National Defense Authorization Act that allows for surplus military equipment to go down to um, local police departments. We need to stop that. I mean, we just have to stop it. I mean, when you look at the, um, the pictures that are being shown, 
across the country. I mean, there's equipment that's out on the on the streets and in communities that rivals what you and I saw when we visited the war theaters in Afghanistan and Iraq. And with these local law enforcement officers, what I found is that they don't actually receive the training on the equipment. They're not tested on the equipment. And so it's out there. And when something like, you know, what is happening now in communities occurs, they roll out all of that equipment and they have militarized our communities. And I think that that in itself sets up a barrier between police and communities and the ability uh, to have the kind of relationship that you need for proper law enforcement. Well, we're going to take just a little break. And uh, when we come back, we'll be uh, picking up this conversation uh, with former Congresswoman Donna Edwards. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I heard Melvin Carter, uh, the mayor of St. Paul, talk about his, his dad, Melvin Sr., who I know the Carters pretty well. Melvin, uh, I, in his first campaign, I did door knocking with him. Great guy. His dad was a cop, and his dad was a community cop in the Rondo neighborhood of St. Paul. And that's exactly <laughs> how police should operate. They should be in their community. They should be on their on foot talking to people. They shouldn't be in a tank. Right. Or a, a military vehicle. They should never be in that. My God. Man, we have a lot of work to do. But part of this, part of this, and I wanted to get to this, which is George Packer wrote a piece in the uh, Atlantic Monthly about what has been exposed by this pandemic. And what has been exposed are the disparities between black and white, between uh, Hispanics and whites. And as a result, you have such a high percentage of these deaths from COVID coming from people of color who have to go to work because they make so little money and they have those jobs that put them at risk. They have jobs like working, well, uh, in a meatpacking plant, but they have jobs like working in a grocery store. Those frontline jobs... And people are getting sick and dying from those. We also, it's also all kinds of disparities, obviously. It's, it's access to health care. It's access to good food. Hopefully, hopefully uh, come November when the president is either defeated or I leave the country. And I'd rather... Obviously, I, I, I love America, <laughs> and I want to stay here. Uh, um, boy, oh boy, do we have a huge, huge, enormous 400-year-in-the-making mess to clean up. Yeah, I mean, I, you know what, Al? So I've thought about this a lot because even when we were doing the Affordable Care Act, we knew then, and we put you know, some resources in dealing with healthcare disparities. We know, we've always known that these disparities are there, but 
what we've seen with this pandemic and with um, the unrest on our street because of George Floyd's murder is the convergence that exposes the deep underbelly that is over 400 years in the making. When you take an enslaved people and then, you know, they work through enslavement, through Jim Crow, through the modern civil rights movement, what you have is you see the economic disparities that also result in healthcare disparities where communities don't have a grocery store where they can buy fresh fruits and vegetables where, you know, kids are going to school and they're going to school hungry and they're coming home hungry. And then you have a a Congress and legislators who think it's okay to cut the school nutrition program in the middle of a pandemic, you know, and a president of the United States who decides in the middle of a pandemic that not only is he going to continue to be in court to challenge the Affordable Care Act so that millions of people would be left without healthcare, those things add to the disparities that already exist. And then you add on that chronic health conditions that actually make you more vulnerable to COVID-19. And so we see this rash of deaths among people of color. And you add to that the fact that these workers, as you say, they are our frontline workers. They're the the nurses in, in hospitals. They're providing food service through our communities. They're in the grocery stores. They're in the service economy. And that keeps rolling. And then you add on that over 40 million Americans who are unemployed. There are so many layers to unpack. And I'm with you, Al. I love this country. I don't want to leave this country. And I don't want this president to get reelected. So it forces me to think about leaving. Where would you go? I don't even know. know, (laughs) Maybe just go north. Maybe just go north to to Canada. Canada. Actually, and and for Minnesota, (laughs) it's nothing. Um, But I, but you know, I think. I mean, I think it's it's such a point of privilege to even have a discussion about where would you go, because for so many of the people that we're talking about who are facing this economy and facing these disparities, they can't go anywhere. They're just right there in their communities, and so I think it's an imperative. Uh, for us to make sure that we have the freest and fairest election, that people are able to get out to the polls, that their vote is going to be cast, because I don't think we can do another four years like this. Well, and then, of course, there's that. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm piled <laughs> on top of everything else. And we haven't even started, really. We haven't really started. We haven't talked about racism, really. We, You know, I mean... When you talk about economic disparities, it's hard not to talk about racism because get a job, get into a best university. Every issue you discuss, how how do people get into select colleges these days or how have they ever gotten into select colleges? Well, yes, more African-Americans are getting in, but it's so minuscule. And who gets hired? Who gets hired for great jobs? Somebody who knows somebody, right? And who gets fired first? I mean, as we're having this conversation, I think the one thing that I have wanted in this moment, and I actually have been, um, you know, gratified to see, is that it's not like Black people don't talk about systemic racism. We talk about it because we live it. I want to see white people talking to other white people about systemic racism. And then I want to see solutions um, to, you know, to deal with it in every single system. Isn't it enough that we're just talking about it? I mean, isn't that enough for you? Well, it's no, but it's a first start. I mean, it was refreshing, actually, when Joe Biden gave his speech in Philadelphia. Beautiful. He it really was. And he said the words systemic racism. Juxtapose that with the president of the United States and his underlings. I think I heard one of them on one of the talk shows last week who, when asked whether there was systemic racism, said no. The imperative for us to choose a president who acknowledges that there is systemic racism and makes a commitment not to fix it all, because we know that can't happen in a year or four years, but doggone it to deal with it. 
and to offer up real solutions, starting with law enforcement and the criminal justice system, but not ending there, looking at you know, lending practices for small businesses. This pandemic has actually exposed how vulnerable um, businesses owned by uh, African-Americans and Latinos are so vulnerable because they don't have the relationships with the lending institutions to be even be able to access the federal dollars that are there so that they can sustain their businesses. You know, it's not like white businesses are rushing to locate in, you know, black and brown communities. And so that could wipe out an incredible level of entrepreneurship that in some ways helps to sustain some of these communities. And so I want a president who's going to deal with that stuff. And I know that we have one now who's going to fight against it tooth and nail, and we just can't afford it. We, ju- we just can't afford it. Chris Rock is a friend of mine. We were talking the other day, and he cited something that the Boston Globe looked at Boston and the net uh, wealth of white families versus black families. And he had me guess <laughs> what they found out. And I was closer than I, I, than I was very... Now I'm sounding like I'm bragging because he said whites, and I said 250,000, and he said, Yeah, exactly, it's like 246. Then he said black families, and I went, Well, it's either very small or negative. And here's what the total was eight dollars. When you go back to the recession in 2008, 2009. Black family wealth was wiped out. I mean, it was already low then, but it was wiped out. And it has never recovered. And what we're facing right now, by next year, when we look at that same number, it is going to be negative. I promise you it will be negative. By the way, I on my podcast, I'm not depending on Chris Rock's uh, research. Uh, it was it was the spotlight unit at the Boston Globe, and I looked it up, and it was eight dollars. And I think you're right. I mean, how can it not be negative now after what this has done? First of all, um, so many minority-owned businesses are operated out of people's homes, and so it isn't as though you know there's. I mean, there's a well. That's an advantage because they have to stay home. <laughs> <laughs> some of this you got some of this you got to got to laugh because it, it it brings you to tears. I mean, I've actually been I I can't believe how much I have been brought to tears over this last, you know, week by images that I'm seeing, by voices I'm hearing. The sadness that I I feel when my my son calls me or you know, sends me a text message or something because I'm like, man, I mean, I was, I think, 10 years old in 1968. And so I have a a vision of what was happening kind of on television. But I didn't envision that 50 years later, I would still have to be dealing with this and that my, my son would still have to be dealing with this garbage. I wanted to ask you about that because you wrote a moving op ed in the Washington Post a few days ago. Uh, and it's about being a black mom, about being an African-American parent with a black son and just being exhausted and angry about that. I am. I'm tired. I mean, I can recall when I first had a conversation with my son about what, you know, in, in the most gentle way possible that a mother can about a prospective interaction with law enforcement. And he was in middle school. And the reason is because he was then just starting to be independent, going on the, you know, metro by himself, walking on the streets after um, school to socialize with, you know, with friends. And I knew then that I really needed to, you know, to talk with him. And then he got his driver's license. And oh my gosh, I mean, you know, I mean, all of us worry about a teenage son who's, you know, driving in and out of uh, the city. We live in the in the suburbs. But my worry was not about his driving. I knew he was a good driver. 
my worry is that he would get stopped by police and having to teach him to keep his hands on the steering column. So if he was stopped, that law enforcement would see his hands, hands there. That is painful to do. It is painful. And I cannot believe that here I am now, and he's in his early 30s. And honest to goodness, he says he's going down you know, to Lafayette uh, Park. I applaud that he wants to do that, but I'm having him text message me every you know, half hour just to check up on him or worry that he's going to be, you know, sort of driving someplace and, you know, get stopped. I'm tired of this. I talked to so many moms and after I wrote that column, I cannot tell you how many mothers who were writing to me saying how exhausted they are too and how angry they are to still be in the same, uh, same circumstance. And um, we just, we have to fix this, Al. We have to fix this. This is why I'm praying about this election. This is why I'm praying that we have vote by mail. <laughs> Didn't the president say if we have everyone voting by mail, if we have vote, uh, widespread vote by mail, a Republican will never get elected again? Yeah. He, he said that. He, he said that, Al, but in fact, it's actually really not, I mean, it's not entirely uh, true. I do no, think Republicans more, love to vote by mail. <laughs> right, exactly. But I do think that we have to ramp up vote by mail. We have to ramp up our education about what it means to vote by mail. I mean, I've seen some of the accounts of, you know, things that happened. Even yesterday, there were several primaries that were going on in states, and there was a lot of confusion. There were many more people voting by mail, and, you know, they didn't either get their ballots or know where to take their ballots and stuff. And so we've got a lot of work to do between now and November to make sure that given, I think there is going to be this, you know, resurgence of COVID-19, um, we've got to encourage people to vote by mail and people want to do it. You know, I was, I, I wrote something a couple of weeks ago about vote by mail after the president's really ridiculous statements, which I think he's doing in order to discourage African-American voters and Hispanic voters from voting by mail by saying that it's fraudulent and all that stuff. It's garbage. But people want to vote by mail. There was a survey that was done, I think, a week or so ago that said something like 60 percent of people are planning to cast their ballots by mail. Well, that was only 26 percent in the 2018 election. And so you know, election systems are going to be inundated and we've got to make sure that they can get those ballots out, get them back and get them counted. Well, what what the Supreme Court did in Wisconsin uh, for their primary was was criminal. Right. The decision was about when absentee ballots had to be in. But people who wanted to make sure they got the vote then had to go in while covid was so thick in Milwaukee. And you know what? People turned out because they were pissed, I think. But there are clearly people who got COVID uh, that that day, that night, which is just kind of criminal, which also makes me worry about the Supreme Court. I mean, the president is shameless in what he will do in order to try to win this election. But I mean, if you look at the turnout in Wisconsin, I was looking at those numbers uh, for their primary and like 80% of people voted by mail and their voter turnout um, was higher than it's been in I think 40 years. And so uh, when you give people the option and you you know try to make it safe, they wanna do it. And I think the energy level from 2018 to now is so high um, people want to get rid of this president and, uh, you know, and they're going to work hard to do it. And we just need to make the election safe, however it is that people choose to vote and make sure that we don't limit their options. In-person voting has to be safe. Voting by mail has to be safe. Well, you know, there's so much widespread fraud Right. I, I mean, I had to pause there because, you know. I, I like did. the pause. Right. We're keeping it. 
I mean, the, the only <laughs> the only real fraud that happened, I think, at, um, in what 2016 was the Republicans down North in Carolina. North Carolina. I mean, Kobach. It was three million. Hillary got three million <laughs> illegal, uh, you know, illegals <laughs> voting for her. And Kobach, you know, this rabid uh, guy from Kansas who's the attorney general there, and he's going to go, he's going to get this commission, and he's going to find these three. He couldn't find one. Right. I mean, this is the thing. They, I mean, the president and Republicans make all of these claims, and then they set up the mechanisms to, like, root it out. And when they can't find anything, it's like crickets. You know, dead silence. Um, <laughs> but that's why we've got to like, you know, we've got to put all of that stuff, you know, out of our, our heads and make sure that people don't listen to that messaging, whether it's coming to them on the Internet or, um, you know, on cable television or wherever. And just say, turn your ballots in and vote so that we can get them counted. And I know that, you know, when that happens, we're going to win this election. And uh, and right now, the way things look, I think, you know, that the House is going to remain in Democratic hands. I think there's a real possibility of flipping the Senate. And I know that Joe Biden can win this election. You know, I always think that whoever wins an election, look, I'm an activist and an advocate. You've always got to push the person who's in office to do the right thing. That's our job. But we got to get him in first before we can push him. I actually really was moved by this speech on Sunday. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm a sap. Well, I'm a sap too. Um, when I said things are bringing me to tears and it was his speech. I mean, it, and also because you could tell that he meant it for pizza. I mean, when have you heard <laughs> the, the president of the United States stand in front of a microphone or a teleprompter and you believe that he actually meant what he said? Like, never. Oh, um, come on. He's a sick man. <laughs> He doesn't feel anything. He right. doesn't believe anything. He yeah. believes in Donald Trump. You know what? Somebody asked me the other day if there's anything that Donald Trump could say that could, you know, change your mind or make you listen. They were talking about maybe he should make an address to the nation. I was like, please don't do that because really there's nothing. You know, when I thought, and this is me, this shows what an idiot I am. So after he did the disinfectant, injecting the disinfectant right. thing, I thought... I, I don't know why I thought this, but I thought the next day he would go like, you know what? That was really stupid. I had a brain freeze and I don't know how I did that. But boy, that was dumb. I thought like that's the only way, first of all, you can get past that. So that's what he's going to do. And I don't know why I thought that because he's <laughs> incapable of that. Even that. <laughs> I mean, I thought like that's the smart thing to do. Wow. I think you may have had a brain freeze, Al, <laughs> because why would you think that? <laughs> because he's an idiot. There's that. There's the idiot. But even idiots can have brain freezes. <laughs> Did he really think that you could inject bleach into your bloodstream and not really like feel like really sick, maybe, and like die? I don't know about you, but I find this thing where I'm listening to him and then my head just turns to the side and my brow furrows because I'm trying to, I'm asking myself, did he really just say that? I mean, it's making me think that I misheard, that I, and, and it turns out, no, in the replay, he actually did. And really? So we, You're still yeah. there? Yeah. I am not there anymore. <laughs> I'm not there anymore. Yeah. I'm not surprised by anything he says. Yeah, I, I just, I, 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 I'm, look, I'm weary. <laughs> I'm, I'm weary. I'm tired. And I think the events of the last um, several days have made me both, you know, sort of more weary, but also with filled with a lot of energy um, to know that we've got to, we have to change this. And so I, I don't really have patience listening to anybody talking about, well, if you vote, it doesn't matter, or nobody's uh, listening, because we can't afford this anymore. I mean, I'm thinking about myself as a black person. I can't afford this anymore. I mean, when Trump says, what do you have to lose? And you go, well, it's definitely your life. 
you know, and, and when um, young people are making a decision about going out onto the streets in the middle of a pandemic and they're choosing either way, they're choosing their life. Do they die of COVID or do they wait for the next police officer to crush their necks into the pavement? That's a heck of a choice to have to make. And we're tired. Yeah, but I like that you're also that you're energized. And that's that's the reaction. You know, Terrence Floyd, George Floyd's brother, one of the most moving moments in all of this uh, was there at the site that his brother was killed and he was crying and he buried his face in a handkerchief while someone was introducing him. And when he was introduced, he took the handkerchief away, and he righted himself, and he said, looting and burning doesn't bring my brother back. Vote. Vote. Educate yourself and vote. That was one of the moments. That was one of the many moments where I've been so moved, his brother. I was too, Al. I mean, I I listened to him, you know, um, I just uh, finished listening to his his son, uh, Quincy, and um, I think about the strength of these family members who even in the face, you know, of all of this, they don't want George Floyd to be remembered for the aftermath of looting and stealing and wrecking communities. They want him to be remembered as a voice for change, you know, and the message of going out there um, to vote. I thought it was incredibly, you know, powerful. And I, and also, you know, that it spoke to, you know, all of these young people um, to help them realize that they have power. Yesterday, uh, uh, election day, in Missouri, um, a black woman won as the mayor of Ferguson. And here we are several years away from, um, you know, the horrible events in Ferguson, Missouri, and they elected a black mayor. That's how you make change. That's that's great. That's amazing. That's good. (laughs) That's good. I am um, enjoying being able to use my voice, um, both in the Washington Post and also in my commentary on, you know, the network and um, MSNBC, um, because, you know, I realize, especially, and you know this too, as a former senator, that you do have a voice, and I do, and I'm going to, you know, use it, and I have the luxury not to be constrained um, by the politics, which I love. This has been just great. It's been uh, important and delightful, and I look forward to uh, seeing you again soon. Great. Thank you. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. 
It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.